The scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 and reading the entirety of the chapter through verse 22. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the backside of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the sons of Israel and they say, and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of of the Hebrews, has met with us, And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor... And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder 
the Egyptians. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would use your word this day as you have promised, that it would indeed come and and cut us up and prepare us to be your faithful servants. Use your word as you have promised and direct us to Christ our Savior and King and the life that you would have us to live in obedience to your word and commands. Strengthen us for these things by your spirit, we humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of the burning bush is likely one of the most famous accounts in the Bible, one of the most popular stories in the Bible, a story that readily excites our imaginations, even from the youngest of ages, a story we learn about in Sunday school and then never forget. We wonder what the bush looked like, how big it was, or maybe even what kind of bush it was. One scholar contends it was a thorny bush of some kind, another believes it was a blackberry bush of some kind. The simple fact of the matter is that we don't know for sure. And the word that's used here is rather exclusive. But we, like Moses, well, we turn aside to see this great sight. Upon a careful reading of this part of Moses being commissioned to lead the sons of Israel out of Egypt, perhaps there are some details we haven't noticed before or some aspects of the story that we take for granted and need to rethink. We know from Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 that another 40 years have gone by since chapter 2 and that Moses is 80 years old when Yahweh calls him to go back to Egypt. Now, there are a couple of you here this morning who are 80 years old or close to it. Now, can you fathom being called to start a whole new chapter in life like this? Now, admittedly, we're breaking up this scene before the burning bush into two parts since this narrative goes all the way to chapter 4 and verse 17. But then that would probably be too much to cover in one go. So let's begin to delve into what is here for us in this well-known passage, which has much to say to us today as the church and as believers. In verses 1 through 12, we can categorize as the call that Moses receives. In verse 1, we're told that Moses is engaged in shepherding duties for his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Jethro means preeminent or his excellency. And Moses is taking up the familiar calling of being a shepherd, which reminds us or takes us back to Jacob and the identity of the sons of Israel when they first went into Egypt and settled in the Goshen. Moses is functioning like a deacon of sorts for Jethro, taking care of the priest's flocks. And he's on the backside of the wilderness, the side that would be away from everyone. And he he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb means dry place. And we should understand that this whole exchange at the burning bush, that it takes place on the mountain. In verse 2 we read, And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet the bush was not consumed. Now, three times specific mention is made to the bush. And as as mentioned just a moment ago, we don't know what kind of bush it was. But the word that's used here is only found here in Exodus 3, once in Deuteronomy 33.16, which is a reference back to this event. And then it's used as a proper name in 1 Samuel 14.4. The word is sina, S-I-N-E-H, which is very close to the word for Sinai. 
But this isn't a term used to refer to other bushes. Also in this verse, we have the first of eight uses of the word for saw or appeared in this chapter. Chapter 2 ended with God saw the sons of Israel. And now there's a concentration of this word, especially in the verses that immediately follow. But we mustn't forget who appeared, who was seen in the midst of the bush, the angel of Yahweh, who we should understand to be the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity, even as he will be designated as the commander of Yahweh's army when encountered by Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. The angel appears as fire. God is present. And Moses notices that the bush is burning but isn't consumed. It isn't burned up. As stated, God is the fire and the bush likely represents Israel. Trees or bushes often represent people in Scripture. And yes, Israel is suffering affliction in Egypt and it hurts. But God in His grace keeps them alive. And and appreciate the literary work that follows and what's expressed in verses 3 to 4 and the intentional repetition of Moses turning aside. We we have this self-dialogue and then Yahweh sees His turning aside. What this is subtly hinting at is that Moses has been given to one occupation, serving Jethro and taking care of his flocks, and then is about to receive a different calling of serving Yahweh and taking care of the sons of Israel. God, Elohim, called out from the bush, Moses, Moses. The twofold repetition rightly reminds us of the scene with Abraham in Genesis 22 as he was about to sacrifice Isaac, and even of Jacob in Genesis 46. Looking ahead, we might also remember the calling of Samuel in 1 Samuel 3.10. But let's also notice that these, these are the first words spoken by God in the book of Exodus. And here, it's calling Moses to, to embrace a job for which, well, we as the reader already know that he's supposed to do. Even his name, Moses, reflects his mission, that he'll be the one used by Yahweh to draw out his people from Egypt. So Moses replies, here I am. And then God warns him not to draw near, to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. Now, you're probably well acquainted with this by now, but draw near is the language for drawing near in worship. And what is it that makes the ground holy? Well, God is there. Remember, the earth gets cursed on account of Adam's sin in Genesis 3, but that doesn't make the ground bad. Rather, the ground does what God instructed it to do, which is to make things harder for man on account of the fact that he sinned. The ground prosecutes judgment against us. Similar in Genesis 4, after Cain kills Abel, what's crying out from the ground? Abel's blood calling for judgment. The priests served barefoot in the tabernacle and temple. Why? Because it was holy ground. And there shouldn't be a barrier between you and the Lord. That's that's the imagery there. If you're cleansed, if you come before God in the right way, if you properly draw near, if you're a saint with sanctuary access, then you're also holy. In verse 6, God identifies himself first as the God of Moses' father. And then he refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how did he, how did God mainly identify himself to the patriarchs? Well, as El Shaddai, as the Almighty God who makes promises. And that's where he initially begins with Moses as well. But then goes on to reveal his name Yahweh, 
which we can understand as I am. I am faithful, the God who keeps the promises. But notice Moses' reaction to encountering God. He hides his face and is afraid, reminding us somewhat of, uh, of Isaiah when he receives his calling in Isaiah 6, or of Manoah and his wife when they encounter the angel of Yahweh in Judges 13. Now, in verses 7 to 9, there's a nice chiastic structure to these verses. That you, if you have the notes handy, you can see there's affliction in Egypt, and then later there's oppression in Egypt. There's the cry of the sons of Israel, and then there's the cry of the sons of Israel. There's deliverance from the power of Egypt, and there's the conquest of the Canaanites. And then at the center of verses 7 to 9 is the good and broad land, the land flowing with milk and honey. So what we know as the reader from the end of chapter 2 is basically declared again here regarding the present condition of Israel. The specific mention of deliver takes us back to chapter 2 and verse 19 when Moses the Egyptian delivered Jethro's daughters from the shepherds. And now God is promising to save his people. And in verse 8 he mentions that he has come down, which is the same language used of Pharaoh's daughter coming down to the river in chapter 2 which leads to Moses being rescued. So there are these echoes in the text that we should hear. And notice a couple of things here in, in these verses and in the, in the progress of thought that's portrayed from verses 7 to 9. Yes, there's deliverance, and that's significant, but w- what's at the center of the chiasm? What else is there? Inheritance. So not only is Yahweh going to save Israel, He's also going to give them good gifts particularly land, but not just any land, but one flowing with milk and honey. And what's that mean? Well, there are some echoes back to Eden, to the Garden of Eden, but things are also better. See, milk is glorified water. We might remember that rivers flowed out of Eden. The, the promised land, though, is flowing with milk. There are fruit trees in the garden, and fruit is sweet, but honey is sweeter. Arguably, you can find honey in trees up in the bee's nest. You know, if you've ever read the Berenstain Bears, the big honey hunt, then you also know that you find honey in trees. And with the mention of milk and honey, two items, they're not a direct correlation to the bread and the wine, but there may be some sacramental overtones about them in a manner of speaking. Now, consider we've been delivered out of bondage to sin and death, And we're part of the new creation begun in Christ and the heavenizing of the earth and the dominion mandate that's renewed in the Great Commission. Jesus tells us that the meek, the church, will inherit the earth. And so we have bread and wine as these signs of God's promises, of His good gifts to us, even as tokens of our inheritance in Christ. In verse 10, Yahweh commands Moses, Now come and I will send you to Pharaoh... And cause you to bring forth my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So Moses is being commissioned as an apostle, quote unquote. He's being sent to Pharaoh. And he's to be instrumental in bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. Now in verse 11, we read that Moses doesn't immediately accept the call. And I think his hesitancy is generally understandable here. Now perhaps we can make the case that he crosses a line in chapter 4 with his not wanting to obey God's call and we'll hopefully consider that uh, next week. But I don't think we need to be too quick to call Moses' faith into question here in chapter 3. His reply in verse 11 is humble and understandable. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring forth the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Remember what we considered in chapter 2. 
and how Moses was rejected by the sons of Israel as the deliverer. And so his reticence about it now makes some sense. Furthermore, he's been living in Midian for 40 years. If you live somewhere for 40 years, it's doubtful you'd be inclined just to up and leave if you'd grown accustomed to that particular lifestyle. And then notice that Yahweh promises, what Yahweh promises in verse 12, for I will be with you. What's that? Well, that's Emmanuel language, isn't it? Yahweh promises his presence. He'll be with Moses. So Yahweh gives his word to Moses here. But then notice what he says next. And this to you the sign that I have sent you when you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. God gives Moses a sign. The sign is worship. That's what it means to serve God in this instance. So God gives Moses his word and worship. And maybe you think that the sign isn't very good because it's so future-oriented. God is specific to say this mountain that Moses would return to, this, this same spot. And in about a year's time, that's what happens. But Moses is called to faithful obedience well, before it becomes a reality. Well, that brings us to verses 13 to 15 where we can hear the name that God gives. Moses contests his calling again, but again, there's, there's some justification behind it, we might say. And his asking what name he should give to the sons of Israel is not without warrant. Now, where has Israel been for a few hundred years? In Egypt. And what do we know about the Egyptian culture? That they worshipped a bunch of different gods. And based on what we discovered from Joshua 24:14, that Israel served, that they worshipped other gods while they were in Egypt. Hence, Moses anticipates possible confusion on the part of the sons of Israel as to which god he'd be referring. But requesting a name is nothing new. Once again, we go back to Jacob. He requested to know the name of his wrestler in chapter 32. But he didn't get a name. Instead, he got named. He went from, from Jacob to Israel, from heel grabber to God's wrestler, a name befitting for what he'd done. Or in Judges 13, to Manoah and his wife, when he asked for the name of the angel of Yahweh, and the angel of Yahweh replies, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And then appreciate how verse 14 is written. And God said to Moses, so Elohim is speaking here, not yet, uh, not Yahweh, not yet. I am who I am. Now, that's not really a name, is it? God doesn't really give a name. And that's partly because to name something means you have a measure of control or authority over it. We can't define God. We can describe Him in some ways, particularly as He has chosen to reveal Himself to us in His Word. And those are descriptions that He's given to us. But we can never grasp God in totality. No, we don't define God, but He defines us. And this name, that's not a name that we render Yahweh, um, I Am, further indicates that His identity is not tied to any shrine, cult, city, people, or title. He exists independently of all things and is the only being for whom existence is part of his essence. So El Shaddai is God Almighty. He is the powerful promiser. Yahweh means constant. He is covenant keeper. But then, 
Listen to what God also says about his name in verse 15. Say this to the sons of Israel, Yahweh God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial from generation to generation. Notice a couple of things. First, that this echoes what we heard in verse 6 in God's introduction to Moses. But particularly that Yahweh is willing to associate with Israel, even more with the patriarchs to whom he made promises. He's willing to stay connected to his covenants, to be forever identified with them. Now this shows something of God's willing condescension, which of course ultimately culminates in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, notice that his name is a memorial name, a name for God, a name to primarily remind him. And I know that might make us scratch our head and wonder, well, why the omniscient, the all-knowing God needs to be reminded about anything. But this is the way in which God portrays himself to his people. Again, further evidence of his condescension to us and how he communicates to us. And this would be and should be an encouragement to God's people. And that God is reminding himself that the very name he's chosen to give acts in this fashion. (coughs) Yahweh, the God who makes covenants, keeps those covenants. And his own name is a memorial to this reality that he fulfills the promises that he makes to his people. And perhaps hearing Yahweh use the language, my memorial, immediately causes you to think of Jesus in the upper room with the disciples when he institutes the supper and declares the bread and wine as memorials to him. And you're right in doing so. Just as the war bow in the clouds after the flood acted as a memorial to God, just as Yahweh's name is a memorial to God, so the bread and wine are memorials, are reminders directed to God to remember what Christ has done on our behalf and the promises that have been made. We need not fear death or God's judgment because of these signs. He looks at them and He sees Christ, our Savior, our substitute, the Lamb of God, slain for sinners. Well, that brings us to our final section for this morning in verses 16 to 22. And I realize breaking up the text in this way is a little bit artificial, but let's consider this section under the heading of the mission that invites participation. In verse 16, Yahweh gives Moses another command. Go. Moses is being given his marching orders. And notice how Yahweh repeats what he just said. And also what he said earlier to Moses. But now it's to be directed to the elders of Israel. Now technically at this point, Israel wasn't ruled by elders yet. Uh, We see that get more firmly established later in Exodus 18. But the groundwork for that seems to be laid here to a degree. And what is Moses instructed to say? Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has appeared to me, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I have visited, or I have observed, but visited, and what has been done to you in Egypt? So this visitation, this observation, well, it harkens back to the end of chapter 2, when we read that concerning Israel, um, when we read concerning Israel's condition in Egypt, God heard, remembered, saw, and knew. But it also takes us back to the end of Genesis. When Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall bring up my bones from here. 
Well, then what do we read next in our text in verse 17? And I say, translated promise, I say I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So here Yahweh repeats the deliverance inheritance pattern that we heard earlier. But be sure to notice that he tells Moses in verse 18 that his message to the elders of Israel will be successful. And they will hearken unto your voice. That should be of great encouragement to Moses. As we'll see next week how Moses responds at the beginning of chapter 4. Or you can read ahead if you wish. Or you already know the story so you know what happens. But, But Yahweh tells Moses he doesn't have to appear before Pharaoh alone. And shall go you and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt and say to him. So this is their message collectively. Yahweh the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. And I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. So just as Moses has promised the success of his message to the elders, so here he's told his initial encounter with Pharaoh will not be successful. That Pharaoh is going to take more convincing. Verse 20, Yahweh says, so, so, um, so we'll send out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in it. And after that, he will send you out. So the same verb is used at the beginning and end of the verse. So that you have the, the sending out of Yahweh's hand is matched by the sending out of Israel by Pharaoh. And in the middle, we find the striking and wonders, which of course will be the ten plagues. And that even hints at the power struggle that's coming. Because hands, remember, hand is symbolic for power in Scripture. But what's going on here with the request for the three-day journey into the wilderness in order for Israel to worship Yahweh? Well, it's a test. Pharaoh will be tested. And it raises the question of to whom Israel really belongs, Pharaoh or Yahweh. And this won't be lost on Pharaoh. But notice a couple of things. First, that Yahweh is referred to as the God of the Hebrews. That, of course, distinguishes him from the Egyptian pantheon of gods. Second, that Moses and the elders are declared that God met with us, which is this present encounter at the burning bush, and Moses is the representative. But that immediately puts pressure on Pharaoh. See, Moses and the elders are making a claim, our God has met with us, And he's given us this command, this instruction, and we need to obey him. Is there room for Yahweh in Pharaoh's thinking? Of course, the answer is no. But understand the dilemma in which Yahweh puts Pharaoh. See, if he agrees to let Israel go and worship, what is he fundamentally admitting? That the Hebrews are ultimately beholden to Yahweh and to his laws and not to him, Pharaoh is to recognize Yahweh as the true master of Israel. See, really what we have here is a contest about religious freedom, which is something the founding fathers of our country knew something about, and hence why the First Amendment is first and so vitally important. Again, what is it about? Freedom of religion. Everything else hinges on that point. 
And as we'll see in coming chapters, spoiler alert, Pharaoh will be forced to know uh, and acknowledge that Yahweh is God. This isn't just a power struggle, but a war of the gods. Even Pharaoh himself was considered a god in Egypt, and so this will be a direct challenge against him, not only as the king of Egypt, but also as an Egyptian deity. And then in the last two verses of our text this morning, what do we read about? The plundering of the Egyptians. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask for a neighbor, and any woman who sojourns in her house, for silver and gold jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. And notice a couple things here. Who gives the people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians? Yahweh. The Israelites don't achieve this on their own and will depart Egypt richer for it. That's part of the Exodus pattern that we've noted a number of times already. Also notice the emphasis upon women and children. A woman will simply ask her neighbor, her Egyptian neighbor, or if she sojourns in an Egyptian home, when she asks, she'll be given silver and gold and clothing. And then the final verse, thus you shall plunder, you shall despoil the Egyptians. Now that actually employs the same verb used back in verse 8 when Yahweh tells Moses he's come down to deliver them, to snatch them away. But notice again that the Israelite women will bedeck their sons and daughters in these riches and that they'll get them simply by asking. Now I think there's some literary and theological there's some literary and theological irony to this we might say because how would you how would we commonly think of such riches being achieved well by the men going to war and plundering the enemy their camp or their city right and they bring back the goods to share with their wives and children but the men aren't a factor at all here it's all Yahweh's doing And then certainly there's an underlying eye-for-an-eye motif that we're seeing here again. That's a motif we've considered before and how the bride fights back against the serpent. Who's been primarily attacked by the king of Egypt? The women and children. The bride has been under attack and the absolute decimation of Egypt and her gods is going to be further evidenced in the spoils that Israel's weakest members carry away simply by asking. There may even be some subtle slaves turned into royalty imagery here, perhaps even reminiscent of Joseph's experience to a degree. But it's going to be Yahweh who does the fighting on behalf of Israel, which is a pattern we see over and over and again. And this is a truth that is still true for our experience today. Well, again, we have to, we'll have to wait till next time to further explore Moses' response to his commissioning. But what are some further truths for us to consider to, to carry with us in light of our text this morning? Well, first, and a principle with which I trust we're already quite well acquainted, we must come in, we must draw near before we go out. Moses worships first, and then he's commissioned. And the same is true for us. He receives word and sign, word and sacrament, and so do we. And this is fundamentally necessary for our faith. Here we receive our marching orders each week, 
and the strength and encouragement for it. And we, well, and it cannot be neglected. You know, to knowingly do so is to imperil your faith and even your soul. Granted, none of us are called to be a Moses. It's doubtful we'll be called to stand directly before a significant civil magistrate of some sort, at least as far as we know. But surely we can recognize the battle that is raging in our culture, particularly the war over our children, evidenced in the competing ideologies, the competing religions of our postmodern society. And for that battle, we need to be grounded in God's word and his promises to us and to partake of the signs that he's given in baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are for the benefit of our faith. And even as the bread and wine are memorials to him of the covenant that he has made in Christ, the promises that continue to his people and in which we hope and live. Second, we too confess a singular name, a name that is above every name, the singular name of Jesus Christ. And there is salvation in no one else, but there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. From the Gospels we know, by Jesus' own instruction, He is the fullness of Yahweh. I am the constant one, the covenant keeper. And He understands our suffering. He understands our experience, having entered into it, and the suffering and oppression and affliction for the sake of His people. And that's also exactly why He's the only way unto salvation. The only truth. The only life which is at the heart of the church's proclamation of the gospel, the good news of what he's accomplished on the cross, the manifestation of God's love for the world, and the only hope for sinners to be saved by his grace. And certainly this is part of our mission, part of what we've been invited to participate in as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And then let us and then finally let us also recognize that our deliverance leads to inheritance even as we've been given a down payment to our inheritance in the gift of the Holy Spirit, which engenders in us the mission we've been given to disciple the nations, to rule and subdue the earth. And while the fullness of these realities are, are, are still before us in many ways, even as we look to the return of Christ and the body resurrection at the last, you know, we believe Jesus' teaching that the meek will inherit the earth. And that this happens because of God's favor to us and the defeat of his and our foes until all enemies are put underneath, beneath, that are put beneath the feet of Christ our King. And as we trust God to go before us, for the Holy Spirit to go ahead of us, believing God will give his promised grace, so let us heed and embrace the mission that we've also received. So, so having drawn near, let, let us go out in obedience to his word, to his commands as we have been commissioned to participate in the work of the kingdom through that obedience. Believing the promises we've been given, which will surely be fulfilled. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your, for your word and the way in which you communicate the truth to us. We thank you for this story, this true story of Moses' encounter with you at the burning bush and for the fullness of Christ and His work to which it points. Direct us in our faith, in our obedience, in our seeking first Your kingdom and its righteousness, 
And may you send us forth this day, strengthened for more faithful service to you, in which we bring to you all the honor and glory and praise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.